0: This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Thank you all for welcoming me back to this pulpit. And I was assured that I have an audience of eager listeners, so that made me happy. (laughs) Have you ever had a funeral where you have like 100 people in the room? And there are no believers there. Maybe one or two. Was it tough? But uh, I'm glad that you all are folks that know the Lord and want to know His Word. Turn your Bibles to Second Peter, if you would, today. I've been uh, preaching a series through Second Peter, and um, sometimes we, as ministers, like to compare notes. I'll just share with you what I'm doing as you turn there to Second Peter, chapter one. Um, in addition to preaching through Second Peter right now. Um, In the evenings on Sunday, I'm teaching through the Gospel of Mark. And then on Wednesday nights, so I have a little segment of time that I teach. We mostly give it to prayer. But I teach Job. I'm in the midst of teaching through Job then. And um, we have one Bible Institute class going right now. And I'm teaching on eschatology and Israel issues surrounding those matters. One of the other things I want to encourage you guys to do as pastors now or in the future is make sure that you give attention to the public reading of Scripture. And one of the things, because I, as vi- visiting homes, I saw that our folks were not reading Scripture like they should and know they should. So I thought, well, one way that we can make sure that we help them is to read Scripture publicly. So we read a chapter uh, in the morning service and a chapter in the evening service most weeks. And by that means, uh, we have been able to, in the last years, read through the entire New Testament together, and good portions of the Old Testament as well. So, uh, we're making sure to have God's Word read publicly, and I encourage you guys to do that as well. Well, we're in Second Peter today, in chapter one, verses sixteen to eighteen, and I just gave a simple title to the message: "Eyewitnesses of Glory," uh, Peter's eyewitness experience. Uh, was a validation of the truth of his message to his readers. The doctrinal area that we'll be touching on is the Second Advent today, and it has a couple of broad applications. One, to our method of apologetics, to our use of Scripture in that uh, regard. It really grounds our faith here, what he's going to be saying. And then, also, regarding our personal hope and assurance Peter is giving an explanation here as to why the believers should follow his exhortations earlier in chapter 1, which had primarily to do with Christian growth and sanctification. You might remember in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 that he opens his letter giving an in instruction about the blessings that we've been given as believers, that really God has given to us everything that we need to live a life of godliness and sanctification. Uh, through the precious promises that he's given to us and the ability to partake in the divine nature. Um, And so he tells us in verses 5 to 7 to supply all or add all diligence in this effort of pursuing our sanctification. And he wants us to add to our faith certain characteristics such as moral excellence and knowledge and, and these virtues that you're well familiar with, I trust. If these things are yours, then you will not be fruitless or barren or, as I kind of translated to our folks, useless in your Christian faith. You will be uh, fruitful and um, and worth something, as it were. You'll have an entrance uh, given to you into his kingdom richly, in verse number 11 he says, if those uh, things are yours and abound. Peter wants to remind his readers of these things, and he mentions that in verses 12 through 15 that he knows he's going to depart soon, and he has to uh, give them a reminder so that they will continue on in these ways. He's going to remind them in chapter 2 about the danger of false teachers and spend quite a bit of time uh, giving the characteristics and behaviors of false teachers. And then he's going to, in chapter 3, remind them of the uh, second coming in more detail and what's going to happen surrounding those events. But before he does that, uh, he wants to really lay the foundation for for uh, their faith and for uh, the belief system that they that they hold. A large swath of the world today says that Christians believe in a fantasy. I uh, had uh, we've done several mailings from our church to try to invite people from our community, and one of those we did several years ago. Uh, we ran into a well a number of Atheist people. And it's interesting, the atheist folks in Ann Arbor, several of them wrote back to me and told me either to take them off the mailing list or said other nasty things. And I I started a uh, kind of pen pal conversation with this one lady who is an elderly lady who is a very avowed atheist. And she told me basically through the course of several interactions back and forth by by letter that uh, basically I'm just crazy. Uh, I don't have the, the ability to distinguish uh, fantasy from reality. For her, you know, fantasy is a Christian belief system and, and reality is science and, and all of that. Well, they think that God and Jesus and heaven and hell and the devil and all the rest of it is just a made-up story, just as true or untrue as any fairy tale made up by man. God is our imaginary friend. Have you ever been told that you have just a big person up in the sky. Why why would you waste your time gathering to hear about these things in the church? They're more significant things to do with your life or to enjoy about uh, life. Uh, Jesus never existed after all, they say, or if he did, he certainly is not as portrayed as in the New Testament text. The resurrection simply could not have happened, Uh, neither any of the other miracles in the Bible, like the crossing of the Red Sea or the feeding of the 5,000. The assured results of science tell us that evolution is true, that creation is the result of an evolutionary process, and although it had a beginning, uh, that beginning has no supernatural implications, and as clever as your Christian narrative may be, it's entirely made up. You folks have real brain problems because you cannot distinguish fantasy from reality even more distressing, I think, is sometimes the Christians or people who call themselves Christians treat the narratives of the Bible as no more than moralistic stories. The stories, in fact, in their minds could be false, but they convey truths that are important for us to get along and be nice to one another in our lives. And of course, if you, as you know, chop off the foundation of the scriptures like that, you really have nothing left but moralism. So Peter has some crucial words that attack these humanistic and Unbelieving and rebellious philosophies in verses 16 through 21. We'll just treat the first few of those this morning, and he reminds us that we have an entirely true message upon which to base our salvation and subsequent sanctification. If we don't have a true message at the foundation, what's the bother of adding to our faith all the virtues that he gives us earlier in the chapter? Now, don't allow the the story, the, the account that's given here to uh, give this you know, short shrift in your mind, this event that's going to be described. Let me just read it. It says in verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we uh, made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, I, I said what I said just a moment ago because I, I don't want you to dismiss this too quickly as, well, that's, that's just an experience that Peter had, uh, whereas if we you know, kind of get to the real meat of it in 19 through 21, we'll get to the, the biblical revelation, and that will really be where we need to focus our attention. There are three interpretations of this passage, basically. One is that the word in verses 19 through 21 is more sure than Peter's experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. This deriving from the uh, adjective in 19 that the prophetic word is made more sure in the New American Standard here. Um, In this case, Peter's experience uh, would, would be downplayed in favor of biblical revelation, The second interpretation is the opposite, namely that the experience, in fact, confirms the Word, and it's somehow um, a better uh, thing, or it adds to uh, the power of the Word of God. But instead of those two interpretations, I'm convinced of a third, and that is that this unit and the next, the apostolic experience of Peter, and the biblical revelation of the Old Testament prophets, are partners together rather than as as enemies or, or as uh, opponents working against each other the word of god is altogether certain so that both the apostolic experience and the old testament revelation together support the truth of peter's message this experience that peter is laying out for us is is not just a generic experience claimed by somebody who had a dream or a charismatic revelation or a tongue or a word of knowledge, uh, as you might be familiar with in some circles. This is an experience had by an apostle with the Lord and other apostles present with him, with the presence and the voice of God the Father. Therefore, this, we could say experience, this apostolic revelation really, is strong enough to stand on its own two feet. It doesn't need any other confirmation or need to be upstaged by verses 19 through 21 in the biblical uh, prophetic revelation of the Old Testament. So this experience was revelational. Peter made it known in turn to his readers. Far from pitting this experience against the Scriptures, Peter upholds both the heavenly revelation in the New Testament and the prior Old Testament prophetic revelation as two witnesses, both supporting that Jesus will return with power and great glory. He does a similar thing in 2nd Peter 3:2. If you look there, he says uh, again by way of reminder that verse 2 that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So he includes the prophets, the Old Testament, the apostles, the New Testament and including the Apostle Paul in verses 15 and 16 of that same chapter, chapter 3, where he mentions the Apostle Paul. So he extols two revelational witnesses to the faith. The Old Testament revelation and the New Testament revelation together are the revelational foundations of Peter's apologetic methodology. It's kind of like he just says simply, look, if you want proof, I have two witnesses. The Old Testament and the New Testament those bodies of revelation are our two witnesses by the by the mouth of two or three let every word be established now let me mention the uh, context of this which uh, hopefully will be interesting to some of you if you're thinking through uh, issues of dispensationalism and the kingdom uh, the kingdom whether it's future or now or some combination thereof um and, and just the general context that Peter has here. That the Bible uses the term kingdom of Christ or kingdom of the Lord or kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven to refer to precisely the same thing. It is a yet future geographical governmental domain over which the church will rule under the supreme authority of Christ, the monarch, who, in which, rather, Israel is at the head of the nations and in which... Satan is banished, or from which he's banished, into the abyss. God will install Jesus as king in Jerusalem, and all the world will be required to pay homage to him, like in Psalm 2. Now, there are three reasons to recognize that this context in Second Peter is heavily kingdom-oriented. The first reason is that we're, if you look in verse 11, verse 11 you see that Peter says, For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Uh, I take it that there's a lot of confusion out there about kingdom and heaven and church. And uh, I I take it that he's talking about a kingdom setting here. We'll see why with the other two reasons. But we're talking about an entrance into something called the kingdom. It's something that is Uh, Secondly, the second evidence that we're in a kingdom context is this. If you look in the passage that we're looking at, uh, notice the the phrases that are used about this coming of our Lord. You have the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the the majesty, the honor. uh, We have the glory that is mentioned. The idea of Christ's coming is connected to his kingdom reign uh, from elsewhere in Scripture With that parable, you remember he went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So that kingdom is coming with the return of the king. And then um, we have to go back and visit the passages in the Gospels that speak about this. Let's look at Matthew 16. And we'll see the third reason why I understand this is a text that we need to understand in a kingdom context. Matthew 16 Uh, The Lord is speaking about discipleship and its cost in the end of chapter 16, verse 24. And he says in verse uh, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. And then in 28, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then we see that actually happen in chapter 17. Uh, don't let the chapter division fool you, please. Uh, you look in the parallel passages; there is no chapter division. Uh, this is uh, six days later. Jesus takes him, uh, takes John and, and James and Peter up on the mount, and uh, they see his transfiguration. Verse number uh, two. His face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. Verse 3, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And Peter opens his mouth and says what he says there. And verse 4 and verse 5, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down on the ground on their face to the ground and were terrified, and then Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And of course, you know how they were told not to relate that experience to anybody until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So we have to read what we're reading in Second Peter in light of this text, and uh, remember that There's something here associated with the kingdom of God. 1628 makes that clear, that we're talking about a a vision of what's going to come. Uh, Now, let me see. We mentioned about the context uh, in the chapter division already. Jesus predicted that event would come, and it did. Uh, Besides the brightly shining Jesus being an amazing sight, Peter saw Moses and Elijah, and also he saw a bright cloud over the mountain. This seems to be the appearance of the glory cloud in which which God made his appearance in several other places in Scripture, notably in 1 Kings at the dedication of the temple by Solomon in chapter 8. This is the excellent glory that Peter mentions. It's sort of a roundabout way of speaking of God, um, but it is speaking of him and his presence. The voice of God came out of the cloud. This heavenly voice spoke uh, and gave some revelation to the men there. The transfiguration incident supplies proof to me that today we are not in the kingdom. For we do not see Jesus looking like this today, nor do we see him reigning in visible form over the kingdoms of the world. This was given as a preview of the kingdom and specifically of the future glory of the king. And so it offers key evidence that our, uh, that our belief that he's coming back again is in fact true. He will in fact come again looking much more like what he does in the transfiguration than he did when he was here the first time. Now Peter opens verse 16 with a flat denial that, they, that he is not preaching and teaching a cleverly devised tale. We, with him, are not acolytes or followers of an ingenious and crafty and deceptive myth. The ingenuity of the myth, I think, has to do not only with its manner of communication but mainly with the way in which it was constructed. The storyline of Christianity has a remarkable coherence. It all fits together nicely in a package, and we know that's because it arose from the mind of God, not from the mind of man. If it did come solely from the mind of man, it would be clever indeed. But Peter flatly denies the charge, evidently leveled against him by the false teachers, the denial of is accompanied at the uh, end of the verse by the evidence that he's going to give to prove that denial. And what he, what, what Peter was following was what he had passed on to his readers. The information he made known to them or revealed to them as a messenger from heaven uh, to man on earth. We follow, as Peter did, a revealed heavenly religion, not a man wisdom kind of uh, religion. Now the content of the revelation was, in verse 16, the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I take it that this refers to the single idea of the powerful coming of the Lord. And we could be excused initially for thinking that perhaps this powerful coming refers to Jesus' first advent. Indeed, uh, when He came, there was a great level of power in that coming and the miraculous things that He did. But the following verses in the connection with the kingdom demonstrate that Peter is concerned about proving the Lord's second coming glory. Some false teachers had come to Peter's readers and were attacking that core doctrine, and if you look in verse number, uh, chapter 3, verse number uh, 4, mockers came and said, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. See, we haven't, we haven't seen the black swan yet, so no black swan exists, using uh, Talib's book title black swan, he's saying, we, get, we haven't seen any coming of Christ, so it's just not going to happen. It hasn't happened lately. It's not going to happen in the future, they mock. And so the, the readers were experiencing that kind of attack on their faith. We might mention, too, that they were experiencing, I'm sure, an attack on their faith in regard to the first coming, which is reflected in First John. People were saying, look, he didn't come in the flesh. That's not real. That was an apparition or a, figure of, uh, a figment of your imagination. Well, uh, the attack on the second coming drives Peter to uh, give this response. Let me encourage you guys, you know, don't shrink in fear when the Bible is is, uh, maligned in your presence or when people accuse you of believing a fable. We can, like Peter, flatly deny the charge. We do not follow a cunningly devised fable. We have historical evidence on our side. We have eyewitness testimony, Old Testament revelation, and so we go on then from there and we press forward the truth claims of Christ. But we don't have to cow, you know, cower and fear at somebody who says, you know, you're an idiot and you, you know, can't separate fantasy from reality. So Peter then goes on from his denial to make an affirmation. He says, I was an eyewitness to something very significant. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty at the end of verse 16. They saw with their own eyes a change come upon Jesus. Their story was no myth, but it was actual history. They saw a sight that's hard to describe, but two features were called out. You had the shining face of Jesus, and you had his extremely bright white garments, as if light was emanating from his body somehow. Well, We know that comes from his his glory that was really masked in uh, in in his incarnation. The appearance here seems to be more glorious than his post-resurrection appearances at the end of each gospel. A little detail is given as to his physical appearance in those cases, uh, but the fact that several people did not initially recognize Jesus, remember on the road to Emmaus or even the women at the tomb, might indicate that he wasn't extremely bright and shiny then like he is here in the Transfiguration passage. This, again, uh, looks like kingdom preview, and it looks more like his description in Revelation 1.13 when he appears to John in in resplendent majesty and glory. Moses and Elijah were there also appearing in a glorified state, and they spoke with Jesus. Luke records the interesting detail that their conversation had to do with his approaching departure. I think Jesus lived with that over his head all of that time and knew about that approaching departure. But they. uh, They knew he was about to accomplish something significant in world history on the cross as a display even of his great glory and his humiliation. So, does seeing amount to believing then for Peter? You know, I saw it. Uh, Peter is contrasting the the idea of clever tales to actual eyewitnessed events. We have three eyewitnesses. We have Jesus himself. In, in all of this some people would would say that you know those that would say that we have an imaginary friend I wonder what they would say if they were actually there at the Mount of Transfiguration it would be interesting to see what their um, what their expression would be after that but they still might and might likely not believe because of their sin and they might reject the Lord. Despite that, Luke chapter 16 reminds us that even if somebody sees a resurrection from the dead, they will not believe still. If they don't, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe though someone rises from the dead and tells them about the awful horrors of the place called Hades that the rich man there was experiencing. So seeing is not believing uh, for some, but it is believing for others depending, on, of course, on the work of God's Spirit. In their I uh, give an illustration. Uh, a friend of mine at the church, shortly after he was saved, in his great zeal in those early days of his salvation, shared his faith with a co-worker. And the co-worker shocked him by saying, Look, friend, if Jesus were to show up right here at this lunch table, I still wouldn't believe in him. That's the hardness of sin and the difficulty uh, which we face as we share the gospel with people. Well, a caution here. People who have an experience, even a demonic experience, uh, can be stubborn in their insistence that the experience reveals truth and is the basis for their reality. They affirm that their explanation of their experience is infallible and thus becomes their authority. Therefore, we need more than a mere experience, even eyewitness experience. I've ministered to people who say, Pastor, I saw some very strange things. And I'm not here to deny that you saw some very strange things. I'm just wondering what the source of those strange things was that you saw. uh, Recall that Peter's experience was not merely an experience. You know, I saw it, so it must be true. This was an apostolic divine revelation from heaven. That's why Peter's going to go on to talk about the prophetic word when you view alongside of that apostolic revelation uh, is going to provide a second or double witness to the truth of his message so peter certifies that he saw this thing which ensures that he's not preaching a fable and so in addition to what i mentioned earlier and what by way of application don't be don't cower in fear when people say you're believing a myth you know, we can deny that and we should but also we should be totally confident about our faith in christ listen don't make pascal's wager okay that's not a great way to go it's not the right way to go at all we're, we're not in the back of our minds saying well just in case I'm wrong you know I'm going to go this route we don't have to do that. we know that what we believe and teach is hundred percent true and that forms a good foundation for us to move on in maturity. Peter makes a second affirmation here I put this under the heading he was an ear witness he was an eyewitness but he was also an ear witness he heard something from God. As this happened, not only did he hear it, but he fully understood what he heard. This is uh, not always the case. Remember in John chapter 12, a voice came from heaven to Jesus, and some of the people didn't understand that voice. Um, when Je- when uh, Jesus ministered to Paul on the road to Damascus, the people didn't, that were with him didn't necessarily understand what they were, what they were hearing. But Peter understood uh, what was being said to him. And he- here's what God said. He said in verse 17, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we, we we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So I think there are three things that are going on here. He does say back in the passage we mentioned in Matthew, also hear him. Listen to what he has to say. Reflect back on Isaiah 42.1 about the delightful spirit-filled servant. This is to that passage. First of all, you have the identification of the Son. He is the Son of God, simply identified as the Son. As we've surely studied before, we know that this does not mean that Jesus had a beginning. It does not mean He was procreated or that He was inferior to God the Father. It speaks to His eternal Sonship and it means that He shares in all the same attributes as His Father, like Father, like Son in that way. It declares that he has equal authority and standing with the Father. Secondly, we have a description of the Son as a beloved one. This describes him as uh, somebody who God the Father is very happy with. He's uh, pleased with what his Son is doing in his ministry of the gospel of the kingdom on earth. No mere man could partake of this description. My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased and then we have the command that we read in Matthew 17 to hear the son so Moses and Elijah were present in some kind of intermediate existence prior to their resurrection these are the two most well-known prophets of the old testament era but god points the disciples rather than to Moses and Elijah he says i want you to hear him my beloved son and i think there's a good bit of significance to that. The contrast to the Old Testament prophets is clear. There's something new and important which is uh, on the scene here uh, from the Son, which is not available in the Old Testament prophets in their writings. Uh, good dispensationalists will always point to John 1:17, their, uh, that The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There's something of a discontinuity that is occurring with this new dispensation that has arrived, and that would be good to heed for those of our friends that uh, partake a little bit too much of the Old Testament law for sanctification. We need to to remember that there's a hear him uh, call in the Mount of Transfiguration. There are clear implications also here for progressive revelation and the discontinuities that uh, it brings in this new age. Now, the combination of these ideas shows not only that Peter Uh, saw the majesty of King Jesus, but he also heard a report of it from God the Father. He received honor and glory from God the Father. The honor, I think, is shown primarily in the words of of the Father to the Son, and the glory is shown in his majestic appearance. And this brings me to my third little piece of application, and that is, look, if Jesus receives honor and glory from the Father, What ought you to give to Jesus? If the Father gives Him glory and honors Him and appreciates Him, then we too ought to receive, ought to give rather, honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. He should receive from us honor as Savior, as Lord, as Shepherd, as King, as Head, and in fact, as our God. If we don't honor Him, then we don't honor the Father who sent Him. So Peter was a witness of this kingdom preview. He's speaking uh, here of truth that undergirds his exhortations to Christian growth. His reminders would be utterly useless if they were based on a false premise. If Christianity were false, there would be no reason to bother growing in character or preparing for our entrance into the kingdom of Christ, which wouldn't be coming if it weren't coming. But on the basis of good eyewitness testimony, we can be assured that our faith is well-founded. Christ will return in honor and glory, and the, then the issue of, the, of entry into the kingdom will become critical. Uh, he is coming back, and the question is, do you want an entrance into the kingdom of Christ, and do you want a rich entrance into that kingdom of Christ? Only those striving diligently will receive a rich entrance into the kingdom uh, the kingdom. Uh, perhaps, you know, on another note, in your darker days, you've wondered, is this all worth it? Is this really true? Perhaps those people to whom you minister will have some of the same questions. Is this really right? Um, is Christ coming back? It seems like He's taking a long time. And there's so many awful things in this world, and people's personal assurance begins to wane, and, and they flounder about. It's very worthwhile to go through this passage with our folks, with ourselves even, because uh, they face and we face the same attack. Christianity is a myth. There's nothing new here under the sun. It's the same attack today as it was a couple thousand years ago. And so you can use this passage to help bolster people's confidence in the face of those attacks that may seem to be a withering uh, kind of attack to them. I also would note here, just to close, a little detail Um, the Lord is given titles here which are quite amazing he receives honor and glory from God the Father the majestic glory Um, he gets majesty Peter ascribes him majesty and power in verse 16 these are the kind of terms that would be used in that day of the Roman Emperor and so this would be really almost an attack against the glory of Caesar as Peter replaces Caesar with the Son of God, uh, in in addition to affirming directly the deity of the Son. Uh, And we have, you know, in our world, not as much in our country, but in a lot of places, a a real reliance on the supreme authority of government and and dictators and rulers throughout the world. But we have to, to remember, we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who is solely worthy of all honor and glory and obedience. May we never consider him as merely a cleverly devised fable. He is not. We know because Peter tells us he has seen so himself. Let us pray, Heavenly Father. I thank you for your word here in Second Peter and for the affirmation that it gives to us. We ask that you will apply these words to our hearts. I pray the explanation has been clear. And that the application helpful, and that in any wise that we are dealing with certain things that might connect with this passage now in our ministry and ourselves, may you help us to apply it to those situations as well. Thank you for this uh, chapel hour. Thank you for the seminary, for the institution, for the church that supports it. And for each of these men, Lord, I pray that you will help them to watch themselves. To pay heed to their doctrine and to their practice, that they might not be disqualified from the glorious gospel that you are giving to them. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary please go to dbts.edu.